more than not, when that happens, the stock goes down a lot. I think that day the stock went down something like 45%. So when I bought, it was probably around $10 a share and it declined down to, well, I guess it was about $5 a share. But then over the next few days, it kept going down. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Nate Abercrombie. Nate, are you ready to rock? Yes, I am, Andrew. I really am. Okay, let's do it. So, let me tell the story of your life. Before grad school, Nate Abercrombie lived in Damascus, Syria for two years trying to learn Arabic, and that is already impressive. He had hoped the language skills would help him secure a job in the oil and gas industry. Somewhat ironically, he ended up working in the renewable energy industry as a financial analyst. He loved having the opportunity to analyze and research large capital product projects, but financial analysis in the wind energy business can become a little bit repetitive, (laughs) like a windmill going round and round. He needed a new challenge and equity research was something that he really wanted to do. Nate got a shot to work at Janus Capital. It was a phenomenal learning experience and he got to know some great investor. However, ultimately, Nate had, after enough time at Janus, he wanted to level the investing playing field for the average investor by giving them similar advantages that institutional investors have access to. So he started thinking about the next steps for himself. Something he really enjoyed about the equity research process was meeting management teams. Considering that the average investor never has the chance to listen to management, Nate decided to start a podcast called Investing with the Buy Side. Nate, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, well, thanks, Andrew. I appreciate the opportunity. And You know, I guess there's just one more thing about the fact that I left the uh, professional research and investing industry is for a long time. So I covered energy and industrial stocks, but, you know, my focus is primarily energy and the energy space ever since 2014 has really gotten completely annihilated relative to other sectors. And so one of the things that really shocked me about sitting down and meeting with management teams is just how positive a lot of them were with respect to the outlook. So especially with respect to the midstream sector. And so I wanted to get that message out there. And and that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast. And then I guess the other reason that I wanted to start a podcast is because I didn't want to leave Denver. I'm here in Denver, Colorado, and it's a great place to live. And yeah, I don't see myself ever leaving this this city and this state, but uh, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you, since I'm sitting here in beautiful Bangkok, Thailand, it's hard for myself and other listeners over here in Asia to imagine, what is Denver like? Why are you so enthralled with it? Well, I guess it's the seasons. You really get four seasons and then you get snow and you have access to the mountains. And I'm originally from Oklahoma, so it's, it's more than a day's drive, but you know, it'll take you around 12 hours with stops and everything, especially with kids to get to Oklahoma to visit my family and allow my kids to see their grandparents. So, you know, it's just a great, it's, it's a wonderful city. There's just so much going on sports, everything else. It's just a really great city to live in and it's growing and it's changing. and It's just really fun to watch. Mm. Yes. And I've been through Denver a few times. My first time was traveling from Ohio where I grew up to California. And I kind of remember this, if I remember correctly, 
that's the point where I really started rising in my elevation up through the Rockies before eventually dumping out on the other side where I, it was quite flat. So I remember just seeing beautiful sights along the way. And of course, another time that I've been to Denver a few times was to visit Janice, in fact. As a sell-side analyst, you were a buy-side analyst, meaning you're doing research for funds. I was doing research as a broker in Asia, and then I was going and presenting my ideas about stocks and markets in Asia. So in some ways, um, we have very similar paths. So. Similar paths, just not overlapping years, right? Well, I'm, I, uh, I'm getting I kind of old. I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Okay, <laughs> now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, sure. So it's funny because I've got a couple of bad investments and, and, and this one is kind of a, a, a bad in, investment in progress because I'll be honest, I still own some of the shares of this company that I'm about to talk about. But as I said, I covered the midstream space and so... One of the things that I personally, as an investor, and it was also my job, that I could invest outside of just, I could invest on my own. So not having to invest just in the portfolio, I could invest in some of the stocks that maybe I didn't cover, but they were within my sector. And so I was a big investor in ETFs because it was very difficult to trade in and out of individual equities at the time, but I was, I did get clearance to invest in a couple of midstream stocks on an individual basis. And one in particular was Sanchez Midstream. And Sanchez Midstream is a subsidiary essentially of Sanchez Energy. Sanchez Energy is an oil and gas exploration and production company here in the United States. And so Sanchez Midstream well, you know, these companies, they pay a lot of the cash flow out to their investors. And rather than call them dividends, they actually call them distributions. But the distributions that they paid out at the time, very, very juicy. So some of these companies were paying out double-digit distributions. And this one in particular was one of those companies. And so I had already started thinking about my next steps. And at the time, I was thinking, well, I'm going to need some extra income if I'm going to start my own podcast. And Sanchez Midstream paid, I think it was close to a 20% distribution yield at that time. And so, you know, the company was very solid from a balance sheet perspective. They had growth. And so what's very important for a midstream company is to see volume growth on their system. And they were seeing growth, even despite the commodity price collapse, there were definitely some quarters where volume growth had come down a bit. But at the same time, this distribution looked extremely stable because most importantly, the distribution was covered more than one time. So again, some just MLP terminology here. So MLPs, rather than call them dividends, they call them distributions. And rather than call them payout ratios, they do the inverse, which is the coverage ratio. And so as long as coverage is north of one times, that means that they have enough, enough cash flow to pay for that or pay that distribution out. And so things were going great. Funny thing is, is that I even had one of the individuals from the Sanchez midstream management team on my podcast to talk about just how the outlook was positive and how things were going well. And so, you know, this is a stock that I had bought thinking that it was going to provide me individually with some income, just given the fact that I was moving to a new career and didn't, yeah, my outlook at the time 
wasn't very bright from a revenue standpoint. So I bought, I owned, I even was fortunate enough to have management on the podcast to just talk about the business and things were going well. And then in the fall of, of this past year, 2018, they decided they would cut the distribution by 67%. And for any of your listeners who are familiar with distribution cuts in the midstream space, more than not, when that happens, the stock goes down a lot. I think that day the stock went down something like 45%. So when I bought, it was probably around $10 a share and it declined down to, well, I guess it was about $5 a share. But then over the next few days, it kept going down. So I mentioned Sanchez Energy, the parent company. So essentially they own the general partner of this midstream company. And there's a lot of complexities. I apologize if some of your listeners aren't familiar with midstream or MLPs in the United States Master Limited Partnerships, but they are a tax-advantaged entities. And oftentimes, you have a general partner who makes all of the... So they always have a controlling interest. So they're always making the business decisions for the company. And as a limited partner, you don't have any voting rights. And so they made the decision to cut. And Sanchez Energy at the time was going through their own financial difficulties. They're, again, an exploration and production company that, well, commodity prices coming down as they had, they ended up well over, I think it was 2017, they bought a portfolio of assets that they had to lever up to buy. So leverage is way too high. And they're currently going through some sort of strategic analysis or strategic decision-making process to figure out what the best next steps are for that company. But from an outsider's perspective looking in, obviously, I don't have any insight into what's going on with Sanchez Energy. There's a good chance that they're going to have to either restructure their debt or somebody will have to come in and buy them or the bondholders will end up owning the company. And from my perspective as an investor in the midstream company, my thought process was always that the midstream company will probably come out of this okay. And so the stock is now at, I think, $2 a share. They pay a 60 cent annualized dividend. So that amounts to about a 30% yield. And the coverage is, well, at least in last quarter, it was well over one times. It was about 1.4 times. And so I'm still somewhat optimistic, but it's been a bad and very painful learning experience for me as an investor. Well, maybe we should then go through what lessons have you learned and are you learning right now? How would you rank <laughs> those? Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess first and foremost, and again, this kind of goes back to why I started my podcast, which is, but it also maybe is detrimental to me, at least from a promotional standpoint, talking about my podcast, but listening to management and really getting a good feel for how they're talking about the outlook. It's just not what they say, but it's how they say it. I personally think that as investors, it's a little bit more than just a little bit, but for every investor, it's probably different, but there's some part of art and some part of skill. And part of the art for me is the judgment that you can make internally with respect to that management team that's telling their story to you. And there were probably some warning signs on the wall, some red flags that cropped up that I may not have paid enough or close enough attention to. But, and those being just the fact that they didn't really want to talk about the distribution all that much. And they didn't really want to talk about things that were going on with the parent company. And those things I think are critical 
having a good understanding if there's a relationship like the relationships that exist between midstream companies and E&Ps in the U.S., you need to get comfortable with that relationship and hearing, listening to management speak and coming out with a good opinion as to whether or not you think management's being completely forthright, truthful, genuine, honest is very important. So I think that's probably the most important lesson that I learned. Great. And let me summarize what I take away from it. And then let's talk about that if there's something that I'm missing. The first thing I would say that the lesson for me in this is diversification. In other words, if you wanted to get income from these midstream companies, maybe it would be an idea to own five of them or 10 of them. So diversification teaches us, well, you're going to give up that really high return that maybe this one has, but you're going to reduce the risk that that one goes bad. Of course, there's another problem, and that is if all midstream companies are suffering, then diversification just adding other midstream companies may not do much. But the idea is just to make sure that we're diversified as much as we can be and not rely too much on any one company. That would be the first thing. The second thing is basically, I don't know how it is in the US, but in Asia, I can tell you that management pretty much never tells you the risks. They're always excited about their story. And it's very hard to get that information. I think that What I take away from what you're saying about your podcast and what you're saying about the lesson that you learn is that it's almost like reading tea leaves, trying to understand the nuances of what they're saying and how they're shifting what they're saying. Because we have to also remember that management can't tell you the risks. If something's very real, they have to actually announce that out to the overall market. They can't just tell you. So you may be needing, you know, prodding them But in the end, they're not going to say it in that room. So I also just think that as we invest, we want to just always remember that management, I mean, the reason why we like to invest with management is because they're so optimistic and positive and they're creating this business, but that also can be the seeds of destruction. And I think that brings me to my, a little story that I'll just say is that as a sell-side analyst, I brought fund managers from around the world to meet with management in Thailand in particular over a 20-year career, I can say I had more than a 1,000 management meetings where fund managers were there, the CEO or senior management was there, and I was kind of in the middle arranging it. Now, the benefit of, to be a good analyst, you really need to shut up (laughs) in those meetings because the fund manager has traveled or the, the analyst at the fund management company has traveled far to get into this meeting, and it's a very short amount of time. They've got things they want to know. Of course, sometimes when things slow down, a good analyst will pick it up and say, oh, what about this and that? So I really got a chance to sit and observe about a thousand meetings between fund managers and analysts. And I would say my conclusion on those is many of them didn't add much value because the fund manager could have gotten almost all the information that they got on the company's website. And in fact, sometimes the CEOs just get annoyed when they have to explain the business when it's all out there. Uh, The second thing is that I think a lot of fund managers, in my observation, they were confusing understanding the business with getting some sort of advantage in investing in the business. Sometimes understanding a business even more deeply can actually be be misleading. You start to build confidence that you really know the management, the company, and all that, and that can sometimes blind you. So I've had a lot of observations as a sell-side analyst, and those are some of the things that I take away. But anything that you would add? 
I mean, I guess just a couple of things, just with respect to diversification, I agree. I personally think that to outperform, maybe there are, you diversify too much, then it's maybe detrimental to your long-term returns than it is to your short-term returns. I think it's just maybe detrimental to your long-term returns. But with respect to the oil and gas midstream space, diversifying into different companies in midstream. So personally, I'm very well diversified in midstream, but I'm not very well diversified elsewhere. And maybe that's not the smartest decision. But at the same time, when I think you sort of alluded to this, whenever you lose your investor base, especially in the midstream space where you need the capital markets in order to grow your distribution, in order to grow your business, because a lot of these models were predicated on essentially you know, issuing equity so that they could they could fund their next project. But when the appetite from the equity markets just disappear and they're already fairly overlevered and commodity prices were as depressed as they were, you had a lot of investors that just bailed out. They didn't want to be part of the energy infrastructure scene anymore. And a lot of that was retail investors. A lot of those investors were retail investors. And so the problem that the midstream space had was that you had just this flight of capital that just exited owning any of the equities in the midstream space. And so from my perspective, yeah, at this point, it'd be nice to be a little bit more diversified. But at the same time, when you look at, and I'm not advocating any of your listeners to buy Sanchez midstream stock, but at a 30% distribution yield or dividend yield and coverage around you know 1.4 times close to it, we're talking about a 40% free cash flow yield yielding equity. And so in this particular scenario, is there something wrong with the business? Yeah, there's something maybe not right, given the fact that there are issues with Sanchez Energy, the parent company. But are there any issues with the fundamentals of the business, even if, you know, fast forward a year from now and the debt gets restructured or, you know, somebody comes in and buy them, will there be issues then? I don't think so, because they still sit on really good assets. And so when I think about it, about the diversification, I also sort of see, or at least I think this story has yet to be, or at least the final chapter has yet to be written. But what's going to happen when you know, things do get resolved at Sanchez Energy? And I haven't seen one report or one analyst or anybody out there saying that Sanchez Midstream is a donut. And from my perspective, I see that as an opportunity to mm. average down whenever these right. types of situations happen. Got it. But then lastly, to your point, like you're right. I mean, management, they want to tell you things that they want you to hear. And, and oftentimes they are just repeating the story that investors could just essentially go through the slide deck and figure it out themselves, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to start the podcast because I didn't, I felt like it was very unhelpful and it's the exact same thing that you know professional investors are getting and why not deliver that to the average investor. But at the same time, I also do think that having a podcast, well, I would like to think that at some point, maybe having a podcast where their voice is, it's out there in the cloud, it's not going away. If they do something that's contradictory to what they did say on the podcast, and this is maybe me shooting myself in the foot in terms of getting future interviews, but that's out there. And for me, I think it's really great to have that kind of accountability for management teams across the globe, really. Yep. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yep. We're going to wrap this up by talking about one action. 
And I'm going to ask you about one action you would recommend for listeners to avoid suffering the same fate. Now, but I do want to highlight a couple of quick things that you made me think of. First of all, I wrote an academic paper called 10 Stocks Are Enough in Asia. And that was just trying to understand the risk return trade-off of investing in the stock market if you're investing in individual stocks. So I always give the advice to individual investors that if you want to invest in the stock market, you probably should own about 10 stocks in your portfolio. If you own less, you're taking on a lot of company-specific risk. And at that 10-stock point in Asia, you've reduced about 70 or 75% of the company-specific risk that any one company is going to crush you by going bust or having a very bad performance. But if you go beyond 10, you go to 20, 30, 40, now the behavior of your fund, of your investment portfolio is going to be a lot like a passive fund as an example or index. So you might as well just own the index. So that's my first bit that I just would plug is that concept of about 10 stocks. The second thing is I want to try a little experiment with you, Nate, if you'd be willing. Sure. Okay. So I always like to ask this question, and this is a great opportunity, and I, I highly recommend that the listeners use this tool, and that is simply... You know, I mean, obviously, you know a lot more about this company today than you knew when you first entered into this company. So the question is, and this can apply, this question can be applied throughout all parts of our life, could be applied to relationships and other things. The question is, knowing what you know today, if you were not owning this stock, would you buy it today? Yes. Okay. I mean, that's a yes or no. And I think once you get through that yes or no, then that helps you to kind of redouble your thinking and your process. If your answer was no, then we'd say, holy crap, I got to get out of this. Yeah. And so I think that that's a great tool for us to always use to kind of reset ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a really fantastic tool, actually. Yeah, and I always say if I was running a fund management company, I would get all my fund managers into the room every quarter or so, and I'd go, oh, good news. I sold every stock in your portfolio. You're 100% in cash. Now, what do you want to add? And I think this is the kind of thing that can help us break through. So now, here's your challenge. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Oh, let's see here. That's a hard one because I really do feel like this was kind of a a unique, well, it wasn't that unique to the midstream space, but I guess just when you have, it's frustrating because the answer that I'll have for you is very MLP specific. And that is essentially, I firmly believe that finding a good management team can maybe even sometimes offset any sort of sort of negative aspects of the business when you invest in a stock, you're essentially buying a business. So if it's not a great business, but it's a really great management team, I think that there is some value in taking those types of actions and exploring even further, scratching the surface, getting into the weeds and figuring out you know, whether or not that management team is willing to really represent the shareholder Yep. when it comes to their capital allocation decisions. Yep. Because, sorry, but this goes back to the MLP issue, which is a master limited partnership has a dividend because they're essentially telling investors, we will pay you money if you own our shares. And for any new investors, we will pay you this money. And so it's an inherent promise between management and 
that company's shareholders. Yep. And in this particular case, I never heard management say that they were 100% committed to you know the stability of the distribution. I never heard management say, well, every management team says our primary focus is shareholder returns, but I personally think that's a load of shit. I think that there's a lot of other details that go, or a lot of other factors that go into that decision. But if you yep. can find a midstream company that, and I'm sorry, there is one more plug. One example, one really good example of this is DCP Midstream. And so they pay a 10% distribution, or they pay a $1.62, I think, and it's a $30 stock. So it's about a 10% distribution. And that management team, the, the CEO there, Vowder Van Kempen, is somebody that I think extremely highly of because he understands that sort of inherent promise between management and its shareholders. So I'm sorry, that's a very long-winded way of saying, hey, just you need to find yourself a really good management team. And if it's a really risky investment, the better the management team, the better the outcome for your investment. Okay. I can just bring that right down to invest with good management teams because things will go wrong and good management teams will work through it and keep your interests at heart. So Absolutely. last question, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? That's another hard one. I'm, I'm <laughs> trying to figure out what I'm going to do with this podcast. And you know, as you know, as you may know, it's, it's harder than I ever thought to grow a podcasting business. But I have some ambitions of becoming a fund manager. I would love to manage money again. So I think right now my goal would, just, would be just to get back into the investment management business where you know, I can help fund holders or shareholders or investors just make a lot of money and also grow the podcast. But if I can do both, that'd be perfect. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Nate, thanks again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Uh, I, I guess you gave me my parting words just now, which is I know that it is for some people painful to talk about their losers, but the more you talk about your losers, the more you'll learn. And I think that talking about losers is maybe one of the most helpful ways of learning lessons in the investing world. So I think that's all I've got for you. But thank you so much, Andrew. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. Amen, Nate. I agree with you 100%. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.